1. I want to read from the opening of the chapter, 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now, for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, in reading in verse 13, trusting again that the Lord will add His own blessing to the public reading of His Word. I'll ask you to pause again with me and let's unite our hearts in a word of prayer before we proceed. Our Heavenly Father, tonight it is our joy and privilege to gather corporately in the name of our Savior, to sing songs of testimony and praise. And now to gather around your word and around your table. And we ask that you might be pleased to give us help tonight. Lord, help opening and understanding the word. Lord, help in meditation upon what are familiar images for us. And yet, Lord, they are to take us to the most striking event in all of history. And so we pray that you might be pleased to still our hearts. Lord, help us to thrust from ourselves every distraction, no matter how worthy it may be in the days that follow. Lord, it is not worthy enough to hold us back from meditations on things of eternity, things upon which our eternal souls hang. 
And so, Lord, grant us that grace and help that we need tonight. We pray these things again in Jesus' worthy and precious name. Amen. Over the years, I have spoken several times at the Lord's table with a temporal reference, looking at this point backwards, looking around, and then looking forward. Got in my stack of notes one particular version of that message that speaks about communion from a retrospective, a perspective, and a prospective direction. Well, I want to do that tonight, not in the same way and looking at that in particular, but looking at it from the standpoint of the comforts or the attitudes of our heart that should come forth when we consider what we're about here at the table. It's easy to come, one reason perhaps we've come often in that perspective, uh, to understand that we are called upon at this table to look backwards and to look forwards, and then of course everything that's in between the past and the future, we're in it ourselves. It's a remembrance. And it's a remembrance that we're also to partake of, to continue to participate in until He comes. So there's eschatology, if you will, every time we are brought to the Lord's table. But as I said, I want to look at it from a little bit different angle tonight, from the attitudes of our heart when we consider those perspectives. Obviously, in remembering Christ, we're brought to remember His work in emblems that speak of His body and His blood, here is that which is in the past. Here's something that's accomplished. And what I want us to ponder tonight is that in that it is an accomplished work, a completed work. We speak often, the phrase is a worthy phrase, the finished work of Christ. There's an assurance that belongs to us then in recognizing that. And I wanted to read tonight from Peter because there's an aspect of assurance that we can have, perhaps this isn't the best way to say it, Old Testament saints could and should have had it as well, but we have an added benefit. We have an added help. The Old Testament saints were told of Christ. From Genesis 3, sinners were anticipating the coming of the second man. They were anticipating the coming. They were anticipating the person and work of our Savior. But it was in the future. And Peter speaks here of the prophets and these words from verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it notably testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. I don't know, maybe this is reversion to the past day, but this seems to be a Sunday to hit the dispensationalist pretty hard again. But I remember much teaching on that next verse, verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister things that are now reported unto you by those that have received the Spirit and so forth. The common teaching was that the Old Testament saints, the prophets, didn't know what they were talking about. They were under inspiration. They wrote what they were told, as it were, but they didn't know what it meant. 
They had no clue what it was about. And they had to be contented with the fact that, well, you're not writing that for yourselves. You're writing that for people and they'll get it later. But that's not what Peter's saying here. He's saying, in fact, the opposite. He's saying that they did know what they were writing. They did know what truth the spirit which was within them was signifying. There was Christ to come. The sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. What they were searching was what manner of time. When will these things be? I've mentioned both in our own services over the past many months and years now. And an article I just sent over to some of the brethren in Northern Ireland. But the Old Testament saints, in particular the intertestamental period. Seasons where the church was looking forward, waiting for God to move. For God to do something, waiting for their promised Messiah. And as they begin to fret, as unbelief entered in, was mingled with their expectations, they lost the very substance of their promises. They lost it to the extent they had so redefined the kingdom and how it was going to possibly come. They'd so redefined that in their own understanding that when the king came, they didn't recognize him. They had lost the gospel. Well, I don't think that we're immune to dangers. I think the modern church has as much propensity to error, even that very type of error, Waiting, wondering, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you letting the Gentiles and the ungodly have such prominence and power and influence in the world? We're living in the middle of this Babylon. Lord, what are you doing? And then you get focused on tangents and ultimately lose the gospel. Perhaps even then with those redefined views of the kingdom and what the church is supposed to be, lose the doctrines of the gospel themselves. So I put to you again, the best preparation, the best way to understand the future and live in the present anticipating the future is to understand the gospel. So that when the crown of anti-Christianity arrives, will recognize it for the falsehood that it is. But coming back to our text and our own thoughts, we have dangers just as the Old Testament saints did. We can get off track just like them. But there's an advantage we have that they didn't. We have the historically completed work of Christ. We have the inspired New Testament record of that work. We have inspired New Testament epistles explaining in far greater detail what those Old Testament prophets prophesied of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And so as we look backwards, as we anticipate, or or as we come to the table and remember rather what Christ has done, there should be an assurance that is stirred up in us. The fact that God raised Christ from the dead 
that theme that the apostles preached everywhere they went. It's divine testimony to the success of what Jesus came to do. And so tonight as we remember, let us be assured. Let us reckon, as we saw in Romans 6 today, Let us reckon upon what we know, what God has revealed to us of the success of the work of Jesus. What was necessary for our salvation has already been accomplished. And so tonight we have that assurance. But also in the communion feast, our Lord in the words of institution that we always read, said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death till He come. There's a present aspect. We do this repeatedly until, of course, that final day. So as we often do this, as we often recognize that we're called upon to Come away, as it were, from the preacher's series on the minor prophets or whatever and focus on Calvary. That there should be, from that assurance of seeing the finished work, a calming presence of God as often as we gather here. And of course, at other seasons as well. I've used the word calm a lot in the last couple of years. I hope it's noticed. But to come into times like we're in, to, I mean, I forget such notable things, but the pride month that we are in now and the displays, the prominent pressure for all parties to take part. Shaking their fists in the very face of their Creator. It's a sobering, staggering season in which to live. How can we be calm in days of such open rebellion, of such open perversion? of such open anger against God. That's the root of it. Anger against God. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be burdened. I'm not saying that the sinfulness of the hour should cause us to be lackadaisical. should cause us to be indifferent or uncaring. No, we should... Double our efforts. We should be engaged in prayer for help and for grace and that God would in wrath remember mercy. All of those things in a sense can be elevated in such a season of ungodliness. But not to the point of that fretful spirit. We looked the last few Sunday nights, of course the one we shamelessly stole Jeff Bannister's message on Psalm 37 about fretting and then came to Psalm 73 about 
Aesop's confessing his envy at the foolish. You know, I think those are two wrong responses of the believer to the world. When we're backslidden and we're struggling, we can look at the world and envy them. And imagine we buy into the lie that they're having fun and they're not. We may escape that and we may understand the the wickedness, the ungodliness of what they're doing. But yet if we're not really fully engaged with gospel thinking and gospel hearts, we shift from being envious to being fretful. And neither of them is the right response. The Lord didn't come and say, enjoy this feast and partake of it by faith and rest in me during good times and we'll be fretful during the other times. This season between the Advents, this that we could be tempted to think of as a delay. Lord, what are you doing? Let us come tonight and partaking of these elements, remember that our God is sovereign. He is on the throne. Even the fact of the seeming delay of His coming, which Peter will be the one to deal with in his second epistle, is just to remind us that He's not finished calling out His people from among the nations. The fact that He hasn't returned, the fact that times are being allowed to be so dark, is just a testimony that He still has a people to save. And it should challenge and encourage us to greater faithfulness, facing greater challenges. The ups and downs of our lives. It's taken, and we sang that one tonight. Was it Bunyan or Top Lady? Sometimes I confuse those hymns, but to be a pilgrim. Why should that cause us to fret? Why should that cause us to envy? I'm a pilgrim bound for glory. Bunyan rightly, well, scripturally described this world as a city of destruction. It's not an unhappy thing to have your citizenship transferred away from that city and be a pilgrim bound for glory. So tonight, as often in these days of waiting, let us be comforted. Let us know something of His presence. And remember, we understand from Scripture a particular presence as we gather at the table, not transubstantiation, but yet a spiritual presence, a meeting with the Lord around these pictures of remembrance and then away from this table the wonderful I think echo is probably too shallow a word but the wonderful echo of his statement I'm with you always you ever ponder that familiar and powerful promise 
that He made at the point of His departure, I'm with you always. People say that to one another. It, it can't be. They might say, I'm thinking about you while you're away or whatever. But He is omnipresent. He, by His indwelling Spirit, is with us always. So let us in the pilgrim days be calmed by the assurance of His finished work. And then, of course, the last part of the communion phrases, till He comes. That speaks to us of the future day. We do not know when that will be. No one knows the day and the hour. But we know it's planned. We know that it's sure. And we'll not turn it up, but I want you to think with me tonight about those, those two paragraphs in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. We've dealt with them a little bit in some study about the whole rapture question, but... The last paragraph of chapter 4 is dealing with that gathering together of the living saints, coinciding with the resurrection of dead saints. And Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I want you to understand the relationship of those that are dead in Christ and those that are still living. And he closes that paragraph where he's given them new truth, making sure they understand it. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And then he goes over to chapter 5, and that chapter begins to deal with not the grace and the experience of the believer at that coming, but with the outpouring of wrath. With that day coming upon the ungodly as a thief. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. And he says, ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day will overtake you as a thief. Those that are drunk are drunken in the night. But we're of the day. We're God's people. We're not under that coming wrath. And he closes that paragraph. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. So whether it's grace that we anticipate at that day. Or the judgment of the ungodly that will take place in that future day. There's comfort that we derive waiting, anticipating that final day. And so here we can come. We remember Him until that event. There may be cries that are lifted from among God's people of how long, Lord, but there should never be any cries of doubt. Should never be, Lord, what are you doing? Never be, Lord, is, are, are you telling us the truth? No. Our God is the God who cannot lie. Our Savior has said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I love these words. They've impacted me greatly in years since coming to understand our union with Christ. The doctrines we call that covenant federal theology. 
that in our nature, He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's been seated there. He has entered the presence of God, accepted. And He said, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, that where I have earned the right to be, there you may be also. Whatever struggles, whatever fears might come upon us in days of pilgrimage, there's a certainty of the promise of His coming and gathering us unto Himself. And in that day, this feast will be over. The emblematic remembrance will be done. The marriage supper of the Lamb will begin. But let us tonight, as we partake, let us take comfort. Let us take assurance. Let us be calmed as we look backwards, as we look forwards, as we look around and See what confronts us day by day. Our Savior is on the throne. I want to ask you to take tonight your blue hymnal.